Blog Talk Radio. March 21st, 2018 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. And on this show, I discuss news, politics, and culture from an individualist perspective. I'm Amy Peekoff, and I see many of you joining me over here on YouTube, where I'm now reliably streaming, which I love. I've got a couple people over at Zoom. Zoom, I've sent invites out to my patrons over at Patreon. If you are one of my patrons, I thank you very much for supporting the show or show supporters over at my blog at don'tletitgo.com. The show today is titled Facebook and the Need to Legalize Privacy. It turns out that this Cambridge Analytica story has given me the opportunity to revisit this topic since I've started streaming live on video. I haven't done video before when I've talked about this privacy topic, so I'm a little nervous. I haven't handled this topic here. But yeah, I'm streaming live both over at YouTube and at Blog Talk Radio. I see some people are joining me over there. I don't know if I'm going to take calls at Blog Talk. You're feel free to put some comments in at the chat room, but I'm also monitoring the chats over YouTube and Zoom. Let me tell you, before I go any further, the one big takeaway, if you take away nothing else from today's show, This is what I would like you to take away from today's show, and it's this. If we do not entrench into our law the idea that it's okay, proper, to make a contract to protect our privacy, if we do not protect in law our ability to make contracts to protect our privacy, then we may as well just give up on the idea of privacy. And I know that many people, many of you watching, you've just given up. You just say, look, we just have no privacy and that's all there is to it. But I haven't given up on that yet. And I would hope that you wouldn't either. And maybe, you know, you might want to make a choice and decide you don't want to have privacy. But I think it should be left like all other choices to the individual as to when to share data about him or herself. And the Cambridge Analytica story is showing us this from a particular angle And I've talked about it, of course, with respect to government, you know, cases like Verizon collecting all the metadata, as Edward Snowden talked about to us. Um, We need to develop in the law solid protection for contracts that protect our privacy. That is the biggest takeaway. And this is true whether we're talking about privacy protections vis-a-vis private companies, you know, corporations, big, bad, evil corporations like Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, or whether we're talking about the government. The same issue exists in both places. And 
when I was just tweeting a little while ago and I got lucky enough to get a retweet from Shapiro again, I borrowed the form of his tweet. Uh, on the one hand, everyone is taking this Cambridge Analytica story and running with it. A lot of leftists are using it to support a particular narrative of theirs, which is that Trump couldn't have won but for some sort of nefarious dealings on the part of various parties. You know, it's Russia, it's corporations, it's, you know, just unscrupulous politicians and everybody else, that somehow there was something mystical or, or nefarious about Trump winning. Unfortunately, it's not that from my view. It's, it's about the culture at large. Uh, but that's what the leftists are doing. The leftists are taking this Cambridge Analytica story and they're saying, oh, well, that's the reason that Trump won over Hillary Clinton. And that's the thing that we're going to blame this week for his win. Um, that's true, right? That they're doing this and that it's, there's, you know, it's pretty disingenuous because politicians on both sides of the aisle have used these sort of techniques and perhaps Cambridge Analytica's psychogenic or whatever they are profiles themselves. Politicians on both sides have, have used this, right? And it's disturbing when politicians do this. On the other hand, there is more to this Cambridge Analytica story than just mere politics. There is something really disturbing. And the root of it is you know, what I was saying at the beginning, the thing that I want you to take away from this show, that it is important for us today in particular to be able to make contracts to protect the privacy of our data. We should be able to, as individuals, decide to share certain limited data about ourselves for a particular purpose within a particular context and have that legally protected, have that arrangement legally protected. And this is true, again, vis-a-vis private companies or vis-a-vis the government. We're seeing it come up in the private context more in the Cambridge, Cambridge Analytica case. But it's the same exact issue as the third-party doctrine that I've been talking about with respect to the government. The fact that you share data for a limited purpose in a certain context doesn't mean that you've thereby given permission for it to be shared with everybody for all purposes in all contexts. And that's true of you know helping somebody like Trump win, uh, you know selling you things in different areas and stuff like that. So we'll we'll dive into it, okay? But that's the takeaway. The takeaway is that it's proper. It should be legally protected for you to use contracts to protect your privacy. Now, whether you choose to and how we make it administratively feasible for you to do that are separate questions, and I want to address those as well here. So that gives you an idea of where I'm going with this today. Yes, there's something disturbing about Cambridge Analytica, but no, I don't buy into the leftist narrative that it's Cambridge Analytica that made Trump win the day today. Okay, so over here I've got more people joining me at YouTube. Hello, hello, hello. And... They're saying, oh, yay. I think I think my um I've got my Captain America shirt on today. I don't have a nineteen eighty four shirt. I would have had my Orwell nineteen eighty four shirt if I had one, but this is the closest that I have because there was the Captain America movie where there was this theme of the government collecting all the data about individuals and determining which ones were going to be dangerous and targeting them and, and stuff like that. So I figured it was appropriate for today. So let's dive in. If you aren't familiar with my show, what I've typically been doing, you know, I've been doing this show since 2011. I only started doing video this year because I was a coward. Uh, But here I am out there trying to do it. 
I go you know over to my blog when I set up these shows and I put program notes out there. So my blog is don'tletitgo.com and the it in don't let it go I'll make a topic of another show but Amer- basically it's the American sense of life, the uniquely American sense of life that I've been sort of orienting my shows around. The title of today's show, as I said, you know, Facebook and the need to legalize privacy. I'll talk about what it means to legalize it. But the first thing that I've got on the program notes for today is a New York Times op-ed. Yes, pushing the leftist narrative about the Trump connection. But nonetheless, it brings up the basic facts about what happened. It says, in 2014, Cambridge Analytica, a voter profiling company that would later provide services for Trump's campaign, reached out with a request on Amazon's, quote, Mechanical Turk platform, an online marketplace where people around the world contract with others to perform various tasks. Cambridge Analytica was looking for people who were American Facebook users. It offered to pay them to download and use a personality quiz app on Facebook called This Is Your Digital Life. About 270,000 people installed the app in return for a paltry $1, paltry was not an op-ed, by the way, uh, $1 to $2 per download. So imagine you're going to give away all this personal data about yourself for $1 to $2. Right there, you're showing that you don't have much value for your privacy. The app scraped information from their Facebook profiles as well as detailed information from their friends' profiles. Facebook then provided all this data to the makers of the app, who then turned it over to Cambridge Analytica. And then they're saying, okay, so there's a few hundred thousand people, 270,000 people, doesn't seem like a lot, but it scraped the information from both their profiles, the ones who downloaded this, and their friends' profiles. So then the total number of profiles is 50 million Data harvested about 50 million people. And that's pretty powerful if you're trying to target, say, political advertising or even you're just trying to sell stuff. So most of those people had no idea that their data had had been siphoned off. After all, they hadn't installed the app themselves, let alone that the data would be used to shape voter targeting and messaging for Mr. Trump's presidential campaign. So that's the basic facts, right? You've got Facebook users people who themselves, you know, they just have their profiles on Facebook and they have decided that they're going to download this. It was came to them from Amazon and they'll get one or two dollars, which is nothing, but I guess they feel like they don't have much value on their private. They have nothing to hide. They'll just give the data over. And that not only was their data scraped, but personal data about their friends, right? Because whatever those people had access to, because their friends shared it with them, this app was able to go and, and scrape and get. And then they go ahead and turn it over. Uh, Gene in the chat room here over at, uh, I guess, do we call it a chat room? We just call it chat at YouTube. I have to get used to all the terminology. She says, was the information that Facebook users had marked private in their profiles? What I'm thinking is that it's at least information that users had shared only with friends. Facebook is actually, I don't know if it you know, was this way back in 2014, but it's pretty rich in terms of its ability to let you tailor with whom you share things on Facebook. And, um, you know, you can share it to limited groups 
limited subsets of friends, but whatever information that had been shared with friends, it was going to scrape and go ahead and, and turn over. So there's basically a couple different, uh, you know, steps that we need to analyze here because what Facebook has come back and said, at least in one iteration of this, I'm waiting to see what Zuckerberg says because apparently Zuckerberg's going to come out and defend himself. But Facebook is saying that it did nothing wrong in allowing this app to go ahead and scrape all of this data from the users and their friends. It turns out that I think now Facebook has changed the settings so that if you install an app, it's not going to be able to, as a default, go ahead and scrape data from all of your friends. Um, and, and that's a good thing that I think that they're doing that. But at the time, the idea was, and Facebook was saying, you know, at each step that it was consensual, but let's think of it. So first of all, let's think of the person who downloads this app and agrees to do it just for one or two dollars, give up all of their data. Um, even with respect to their own data, their own personal data, they are not aware that when they allow it, it is going to be used for sure for political purposes. And maybe they're not even aware and they don't really give consent for that information to be used for other types of marketing purposes outside of the particular Amazon program that they consented to. Again, I haven't looked into, you know, the real fine details of, of this, but it says, you know, this program was something that was presented to them from Amazon, Mechanical Turk platform, online marketplace, and they're going to contract with others, perform various tasks and stuff. It sounds kind of attractive. It might be something that you would want to participate in. You think that there's a value there. You don't have anything to hide from your Facebook platform, you know, and so you say, okay, I'll go ahead and, and share that data. But do they know it's going to be turned over to Cambridge Analytica? Do they know that Cambridge Analytica is going to use it for various commercial and political purposes? No. So I would say, no, there isn't consent all along the way. And we shouldn't think that, well, because you shared it for one purpose, Therefore, you therefore agreed to share it for these other purposes as well, even with respect to that individual user. But now let's think about the friends, right? Because the friends of these 270,000 people make, the vast, make up the mass, vast majority of those of, you know, who were affected by this data breach. 50 million people, 50 million people compared to the 270,000 who had actually given consent. Now, you could say, and you know, I'm going to go into sort of the broader legal context in a second, but you could say, well, if I'm friends with somebody on Facebook, I've consented to share a certain amount of information with those people. And so maybe is it just fair that we should say that they have consented to share the information with whoever that person decides to, to share with? So you know, if my friends on Facebook decide that they're going to install an app and that app is going to harvest whatever data is accessible to them and then therefore it's going to be shared a couple iterations down the road, have I consented to that? That's really the question that we need to ask. And I would say no properly that you and I as reasonable people would not think that simply because we shared something with somebody on Facebook that therefore we've agreed to have that Facebook friend share it with various other people's for, you know, for all sorts of purposes. You know, the, I think the context is that 
we do have this ability to decide on Facebook who is our friend and who is not. And the context is that we all believe that we're engaging in limited sharing of our data. We do not believe that because we've shared it with friends on Facebook that therefore that Facebook friend can just go share it with anybody else, really for any other purpose. You think you're interacting with that one person and then suddenly you're being made to interact with other people and you have no control over it whatsoever. But that's apparently, at least on, like I said, the first iteration, what Facebook wants you to think, that each transaction, each sharing of data along the pipeline was all consensual. And, and I, I want to question that. Uh, let me go over to the chat and see if we got people so far. Yeah, so Roland over at YouTube is saying that the tailoring options have been there since about 2010. Yeah, there's all sorts of tailoring options on, on Facebook. You can have secret groups and different kinds of groups that, you know, have different amounts of visibility. So you can share things within certain groups. And then you can, of course, have messages on Facebook, which is typically you have the option of one-on-one. -on -one. There's even encrypted message options on Facebook. There are within just sharing things on your profile with friends, you can share within, you know, subsets of friends and things like that. So it's a, it's a great thing. Now, Nick over at Zoom is asking, when you share stuff, isn't it public, as in anyone can see what you shared? No, and that's not true on Facebook. So Facebook gives you the ability to tailor it. And, you know, what I should do if I wanted, maybe I could, you know, do this for people if they wanted to give out little tutorials or something about how to tailor your Facebook profile so you can engage in selective sharing. But there are a few different settings. So you can have a public setting where you're sharing it with just anybody you can have. Now, mind you, even within a public setting, maybe you've blocked some people. And so even if you share it quote publicly on Facebook, the people that you've blocked should not be able to see it. Although, you know, you share it with some of your friends and if some of your friends are real horrible, unscrupulous jerks, um, they could knowing that you block somebody, you know, take something and then share it or whatever that that happens. Right. Um, so, you know, there's, there's that issue of, of sharing, but it's public. Public is one option. Other options are sharing with your friends or sharing with subsets of your friends. So you can create subsets of your friends and then decide with whom to share various things that you share. And like I said, there's also options of, of creating groups and you can have groups be secret or closed or anything else. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of different options for sharing on Facebook. But even if all you're doing is you're sharing with your friends, there are a lot of people, you know, that they just they believe they think, well, once I share something on Facebook, it's out there. And so I just need to, you know, give up the idea that I have any sort of privacy with respect to anything at all that I share on Facebook. And I'm not that. Skeptical. I say, okay, you know, if I'm going to share something on Facebook and I'm going to share it with just friends, people should see it as I'm kind of at a party, you know, I'm at a rather large party and I've shared something with all the people who have, you know, been there at that party with me, but it doesn't mean that I'm sharing with everybody as such. I'm closing about 50 million windows on my computer as we sit here. So no, yeah, it's not always public. Um, and I would think that the default understanding when you share something on Facebook is that you're sharing it with only those 
people who are designated as your friends, not with the public at large. Uh, now, let's see. I think I have somebody over at my Zoom who is not muted. Let me see. No? Okay. I don't have that. Let me see. If you guys are on Zoom and you see that your sound isn't muted, go ahead and mute it. You guys should be muted automatically as, as you come in. So let me talk about the legal environment that makes people think that each of these transactions along the way is consensual. They think, well, you know, when the person downlo- downloads this app, then it's a consensual transaction for them to share all of their Facebook information with this company, this Mechanical Turks. Uh, they And they also think that when a Facebook friend of that person who downloaded the app, that when that Facebook friend shares information with the downloader, the user of the app, that somehow they've consented to whatever that Facebook friend is going to do with the data. How is it that we could even think that that's rational today? As I said, some people don't care. They say they don't care about their privacy, but I care about my privacy. I think that each of us as individuals should be able to have the ability to tailor our sharing of information. We shouldn't just give up and think, okay, well, because we put it out there online, we just have to you know, treat it as if it's public and, and that everybody can know it and that's it, that we can't make arrangements about this. We can engage in selective sharing. But why is it that we might think that we can't? And I submit that it's because of the underlying legal doctrines that are out there. And in particular, this arcane sounding doctrine that a lot of people don't want to, you know, kind of be bothered to understand, but it's very important. It's called the third party doctrine. And the third-party doctrine is a doctrine in constitutional law. It's at issue right now in a case that's pending before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is about to rule on it sometime between now and June. We're going to get an opinion on the Carpenter case. And the Carpenter case had to do with cell phone location data, the data that the cell phone companies collect about all of us. Can the government get that data without a warrant? That's at issue. And there's a doctrine, a legal doctrine that's developed in constitutional law that is applicable to cases like this called the third party doctrine. And that doctrine says that when you share information with a third party, so for example, when I share information with Facebook or with my cell phone service provider, that doctrine says that I no longer have a reasonable expectation of privacy in it. And what that means according to constitutional law, as interpreted by the courts right now, that means that the Fourth Amendment does not apply to that data. So as soon as I share information with a third party, all Fourth Amendment protection for it is out the window. It is gone. And I am at the mercy of whatever legislative protections our creatures in Congress are going to give us this week. That's what that doctrine says. It says you share information with a third party, you have given up Fourth Amendment protection. Now, what does that mean? That means no warrant requirement for the government to obtain that data. The government does not have to present a company with probable cause or particularized suspicion in order to get that data. You are deemed, once you have shared that data, to give up a reasonable expectation of privacy in it. Now, that's a constitutional law doctrine. And you could say, well, Amy, it doesn't necessarily apply in the private context, but you could see how 
the default of this, you know, the idea that once you give up information to a third party, that it somehow warrants less legal protection, how that's going to seep over into the private context as well. It's going to seep right over into the private context. It's going to infect all of our law, not just the law having to do with when government can obtain our data. So it makes someone like Facebook at least have a plausible argument to the effect that once you share information with your friends on Facebook, they are justified. They haven't done anything wrong. There's nothing legally culpable about them sharing it with anybody else. And moreover, of course, Facebook would like to say there's no legal culpability for them allowing these apps to harvest all this data and therefore, you know, then the owner of the app to turn it over to Cambridge Analytica and Cambridge Analytica to use it for all sorts of unanticipated commercial or political purposes. Uh, so, you know, so I submit that the reason that we're in this situation in the first place is because in the law, we have created this environment whereby we do not respect the individual's ability to share information in a limited context for a limited purpose and to have that, you know, have their wishes respected, to have their wishes protected if they go ahead and make some sort of a contract about it. And the contract can be implicit or explicit. Uh, now, let's see, I'm looking over in the chat. The chat's moving quite well over at YouTube. Michael says, I'm sure Howard Rourke would not have a Facebook account. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second because I got to talk about how, you know, we should actually treat these sort of things in the law. Yeah, a lot of people are saying they don't go on Facebook. You know, Facebook is a value. Facebook really does provide value for people. I mean, you connect with people all over the world, people who share your interests. I have met some really good, of course, also some really bad, but I like to focus on the really wonderful people that I've met on Facebook. Um, you know, a lot of important things in my life probably would not have happened, but for Facebook existing. So that's something powerful to say right there. What, and, and I also tend to think that Facebook is relatively earnest about this. So, you know, I am right now being somewhat critical of Facebook, uh, particularly with respect to their past policy of allowing users to install apps and then have that app mine a whole bunch of data, not only your own data, but the data from your friends. That's the thing that's really bad. I mean, if somebody wants to say, look, I don't value my own private data very much. And yeah, I'm perfectly happy to turn it over to Amazon, their mechanical Turks program or whatever it is. And I don't mind if Amazon wants to target ads at me or sell me things. I don't mind if Facebook wants to sell me things. That's a valid choice. I mean, I don't necessarily mind if companies want to sell me stuff. What I do mind is whether my data is going to be used for a purpose to which I did not consent in any reasonable construal of, of consent. And in particular, the thing that I, I really have been railing against for years is the fact that when you do share information with, with Facebook, that the government, because of today's legal climate, the government is able to obtain that information without a warrant, no probable cause, no particularized suspicion. That's the thing that really bothers me. Um, so, but let you know, let's let's look at these 
you know, this, this issue. And actually, let me draw a parallel with this as well. Uh, some people in the chat over at YouTube have been talking about free speech issues. And on my show, before I ever started going on video, I did a couple shows that I called Culture of Censorship. And I made the case that the First Amendment legal protections that we have are not the whole story when it comes to freedom of expression, freedom of speech, that we should be very attuned to, very aware of what uh, I call a culture of, of censorship, whether or not in the culture we believe it is valid to shut down expression of other people. And, you know, we've had violence on campus and various other things, all sorts of you know, harassment of people who dare to express their opinion out on Twitter, threats and, and everything else. We do exist in what I call a culture of censorship right now. It's very important to reestablish the ability to engage in thoughtful and respectful debate with people uh, with whom we disagree. That's a tremendous value. So culture of censorship, you know, and I've, I've argued that it's, it's important to look not just at the law, but at the underlying cultural, the cultural attitudes towards freedom of expression. Similarly, I think we need to, I mean, again, you know, I have to jo get you to join me, right? I have to, to tell you maybe a little bit about the value of privacy and sort of reawaken that value. A lot of people just given up on privacy. They, they just don't care about it that much and they've decided that they they have to if they want to engage in any sort of an online life that they just have to relinquish their privacy and I think that that's deal that we do not have to accept uh, so what I'm going to argue for is that we should try to establish a culture of privacy a culture that values privacy and a culture that fights for and advocates the ways that we can protect our privacy using our right to contract, our rights to property and our rights to contract in particular. Uh, we need to use our right to contract in order to protect privacy today. Why? Because so much of what we do in order to make our lives better and richer, so much of that involves sharing information online. I'll, I'll give you an example. I like to go on YouTube and have YouTube suggest to me videos from say my favorite artist, you know, I, I really like the Jezebels. Jezebels are this alternative rock band from Australia and I'll go online and they'll have a new live video of some song from the Jezebels that I haven't seen before. And I get to watch it. And it's a really great performance and I get to enjoy that. Why? Because when I have gone on to YouTube before and I've watched a Jezebels video, then YouTube has collected that information about me. They retain that information. And so next time I log on, they're going to share this because they think I'd be interested in it. Of course, they want my eyes on the ads that are going to play along with the, the Jezebel's music. I like that. I love the ability to have all of this culture at my fingertips. And part of what goes along with it is that YouTube wants to make money. They want, you know, and hopefully YouTube is out there suggesting my videos to other people as well. And they're going to find the videos of value and they're going to come to me and they're going to subscribe. You know, if you're watching right now and you don't subscribe to my channel, hit subscribe, hit subscribe. Uh, but, you know, this is, I think, to all of our benefit that we have all of this culture at our fingertips. We have all of this knowledge at our fingertips. We have the ability to connect with other people out there. But all of it requires that we share information with other people and we share information with what the law technically calls third parties like 
Facebook, like YouTube. And, you know, not to mention all of the other things that you share information. You know, you go to Target and you buy stuff and you share information with them. Uh, you know, you go to the bank and you are sharing information with the bank in order to engage in various transactions and stuff. You share information with the doctor in order to get medical treatment. Today, the law does not provide enough protection for us sharing that information for a limited purpose within a limited context and not having that data go out into the world indiscriminately. And, and I think it's, um, it's a travesty that that's the case. And that is the real root of what is so disturbing about this Cambridge Analytica story is that people are plausibly deemed to have consented to have that information go out there and help Trump get elected if it even helped him. You know, whether it helped him or not, it's not the biggest thing for me. The biggest thing for me is that we are potentially kind of sweeping under the rug as unimportant the current legal climate with respect to privacy, the current attitudes about privacy, that if you share information for a limited context in, excuse me, for a limited purpose in a limited context, that you will have been deemed to give permission for all of these other things to take place. I'll be very interested to hear what Zuckerberg has to say, because I think even if the law currently protects that, it's wrong. I'm going to make another point about that in a second, but let me check the, the chat over here. Scrolling down. Let's see. Yeah, Michael over at YouTube is saying, we're brought to advertisers without even noticing it. Facebook is a database of billions of clients, and that is where the value of the company is. See, and I don't necessarily mind that, right? Um, to me, the fact that somebody wants to sell me stuff is not the biggest fish that I have to fry. What I care about is not people trying to sell me things or people, you know, getting rich necessarily, but I care about in particular, the biggest thing that bothers me is this turning over data to the government without a warrant and all the things that the government might do with that data. So, for example, let's go back to Obama. I'll talk about an Obama era thing so that I don't have any controversy, right? Because we haven't seen really Trump do this yet, but he's got this tool in his toolbox as well because Obama gave it to him, right? Uh, what did Obama do? Obama used data about certain nonprofits to discriminate against them. People would get discriminated against and treated differently by the IRS based on their, who's to say that they wouldn't do that again? That is the most disturbing thing about this, is that government has this data. Government is amassing huge databases about us. Uh, you know, technically, they're under the separate alphabet soup agencies. So the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has some data on you. And there's a database about people who buy guns in our country. And that's another database. But, you know, presidents have pens and phones now. And they order the combining of these databases, and then suddenly there's this comprehensive set of data about you. And we're in the, you know, Captain America movie where they're going to decide whether you're dangerous to the government and stuff. That's the most disturbing thing, and that's why I've included in my program notes over at the blog at don'tletitgo.com. I've included 1984, a link to Orwell's 1984, because this is the direction in which we are heading if we don't do something pretty soon. Michael says, Amy, the government is a client just like any other client, isn't it? 
No. See, the government is a much more dangerous recipient of our data, right? So everybody else, they just want our data so they can sell us stuff, so they can make money off of us, so that they can get a lot of people looking at ads. They want their eyes on ads so that they can sell more ads and make more money. And as long as Facebook is providing value, and to me it is, it's providing value. It's Like I said, it's allowing me to connect with people that I care about, especially if you max out the different options that it gives to you. You know, you share certain things with certain friends and other things with other friends and, you know, some things publicly. It allows me to spread stuff about my show and everything out to a lot of people who might be interested in the show. And, of course, that's very personally important to me. So there's a lot of value that it, that it provides, whereas the government, the government is properly only supposed to be engaging in the use of retaliatory force in order to protect our rights. Today, unfortunately, the government is not just doing that. The government is, you know, extracting compulsory tax payments from us. It's regulating all kinds of behavior. And in, its, in that guise, it's got a lot of power over us. You know, like I said, the IRS audit is just around the corner if the government doesn't like what you're doing potentially. And so it's scary that the government can obtain all of this data about you without a warrant and that it can use it to make your life miserable today. It really can. Um, so it's not a client like any other client. The government has, as Rand talked about it before, a legalized monopoly on the use of force, and that makes it potentially very dangerous. I just did this show with Yaron Brook on Saturday, and I titled it, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And Ronald Reagan called those the nine scariest, I think it's nine, nine scariest words in the English language. And why are they so scary? Because of the comprehensiveness the near totalitarian reach of, of government today, right? That government is doing so many things that it should not be doing. It is in fact initiating force against us in so many areas or threatening to potentially waiting in the wings that, you know, if it's got this personal data about us in their hands, it is potentially quite dangerous. It's, you know, obviously so much of it depends on who's in office and whose enemy you are at any given time. But I personally, as an objectivist where I, disagree strongly with Republicans on some things and disagree strongly with Democrats on other things, I am potentially a target of some political figure, no matter who's in office at any time. So maybe I'm the one who's going to be more consistently uh, vigilant about this issue that I, that I really care about whether the government gets this data without a warrant. Let me get over to Okay, Michael says, on uh, for Facebook, the government is just a client like others, but the risk is to end up in 50 years with a 1984 situation. I don't know that it's just 50 years. You know, I'm really watching, like I said, I mentioned this Carpenter case that the court is going to rule on. The Supreme Court has an opportunity to either scale back. I think that's all the best it's going to do is maybe scale back. But it could theoretically eliminate the third-party doctrine. I've put out a proposal and I've put that in the program notes, by the way, a proposal about how we could eliminate that third party doctrine and still allow the government to engage in all of its legitimate police powers. Because I am a believer in, you know, the potential of government to be only a force for good, or at least mostly a force for good, because human beings are always fallible. There's always going to be some 
criminals and, you know, other nefarious characters that we're going to have to weed out. But if we were to set up government a little bit better than our founding fathers did, have the checks and balances be a little more solid, and if we were to change the culture with a proper philosophy, then I think we could have a government that endured and protect our freedom for a long time. I believe in the propriety of government. Someday I'll do a show on anarchy and, and talk about you know what I've found to be the most plausible arguments for anarchy and why I reject it. So I'm not an anarchist, but I think this particular doctrine needs to go. We could get rid of it entirely and we could still protect all the proper functions of government. Super fin guy in uh, YouTube over here is saying it's more like five years until we get to 1984. Yeah, that would be, I don't know about five. I was thinking more along the lines of 10. Is that too optimistic? I'm not sure. John says, tip, don't talk to the FBI, even in a casual chat. But John, um, you know, the FBI can protect you. And sometimes we do need protection. So what are you going to do? You're not going to go to them at all? I, I don't know that that's a valuable strategy either. You know, I haven't gotten to that state where I think that the rank and file, at least at the FBI, a lot of the leadership whether they are in military or the FBI, they've been corrupted in various ways because they have to be very political in order to get appointments at a higher level. And that's really sad. But a lot of the rank and file at FBI, I still believe, are wanting to do their job of protecting American people. Robert says he's come here to be educated and now he's terrified. Okay, so let me give you just a little bit of the optimistic um, take that I have on what could happen in, in Carpenter as I've listened to, or actually I haven't listened to it, but I was reading about some of the questioning that justice Gorsuch, you know, justice Gorsuch is Scalia's replacement justice Gorsuch, both in the Carpenter case and some other cases, I can't remember which uh, has been engaging in this line of questioning where he's exploring the relationship between property and privacy. He wasn't talking about contract. I think he's going to have to go beyond just property and talk about contract. But uh, if we could get these justices to wrap their minds around the fact that we use contracts to protect our privacy, that it's proper for us to be able to do so, and that a contract should be treated as sacrosanct, that just like our home, we should not invade a contract that somebody has made without a warrant, without probable cause, without particularized suspicion. As the court has observed, the Supreme Court has observed that the data that we have on our phones, um, that that data is potentially more personal about us than anything that police would find if they walked around and searched our entire homes. There is so much data there. There's so much data that we share online that is personal. It gives such a picture about who we are, uh, you know, what we think, that that should be protected at the same level as our homes, our, you know, persons, houses, papers, and effects. And the, you know, that's a very concrete listing in the Fourth Amendment of the things that were protected by the warrant requirement. But I think in principle, if we started to understand the Fourth Amendment in principle, we could put under effects maybe the idea of any contract that we make with a third-party service provider, all these people who provide us all these values. You know, uh, Apple gives us this gorgeous phone with all of this wonderful capability to it. 
Uh, Apple is, at least by reputation, one of the better protectors of our privacy. As far as I understand it, that phone turns into a brick without my password that they can't get into it. You know, and Apple's been pretty good about resisting the government and not giving a back door into that. And, you know, there's a lot of politicians, even better politicians who want to end that, but I hope that it, it doesn't. Now, Michael says, I use a computer without a camera, old model. Now, Michael, you see the conflict for someone like me, right? Because here I am, I'm wanting to provide people value out there on the internet using video. And so, of course, I've got to have computers with cameras in my home and all that. So it's, you know, it's, it's a toss up. It, we are, you know, we're attracted to all of these things because of the value that they provide, the ability to communicate with people all over the world instantaneously. And unfortunately, because of our legal climate, every time we do this, every time we share this data, then it can be turned over, like I said, to government without a warrant. Now, all of this, you know, I'm out on YouTube and stuff. I'm putting things out there publicly and I'm hoping, I mean, I'd love it. Hey, federal government, come watch this and get an education into what should be happening about this third party doctrine. So let me, let me do two things. Let me do two things. Unless I'm going to go over into the zoom and see if I've got some zoom chat questions that I need to understand. Uh, Craig says, Default understanding, anything on Facebook goes directly to the NSA. If you care at all about your privacy, don't use Facebook. It has nothing to do with the law. The government does not pay attention to the law. Now, there's that too, right? So we could talk all day long about what the law on the books is. But as it stands right now, the the biggest problem is there's absolutely no constitutional protection, no constitutional protection for anything you share with a third party. And so it's only legislation that gives you even the pretense of protection for that data. And all of that, it's subject to misinterpretation and bending and ignoring, of course, by our officials. And at the same time, um, it's at the whim of our legislators, supposedly, the legislators in the United States of America, you would think that they would conform to the requirements of rule of law. And one of the requirements of rule of law is that law be relatively stable. But as we've seen with some of the things that come out of Congress recently, our Congress creatures are not necessarily respectful for, of all the requirements of rule of law. And if there's enough political pressure, they'll be changing things. One of the things that's been most disappointing to me is that even though Edward Snowden has been risking his life and, of course, his ability to live freely in the United States and enjoy all the things that our country has to offer, you know, he went out there on a limb in order to share all the information about this with the public, not just the American people, but the world at large, that governments are doing this, that governments are engaging in the systematic collection of data about you without a warrant, this is horrible. They're violate, government is systematically violating your rights all day long, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, Snowden exposes that fact to all of us, and nothing has been done about it. Not a thing. It's exactly the same as before Snowden did this. The Carpenter case is an opportunity at least to change the law in the right direction. I doubt that it's going to be anything super revolutionary. There's going to be a whole ton more that needs to be done. But, you know, uh, mostly, 
mostly there's been no progress made. I mean, at least Carpenter can be heard now, right? They're standing for Carpenter. That's one thing that the Snowden revelations have given us. Over in the chat room at Zoom, it says Facebook is not a value. It is a threat. I haven't reached that stage myself yet. Um, you know, is is it is it really a threat? I you know I'd say to anybody who's going to go and take my Facebook data for any purpose for which I have not consented, and they're going to use it, they're the ones who have to look at themselves in the mirror all day long. You know, and maybe you say, okay, they don't mind doing it, but whatever. Uh, it's it's them who is going to look bad and look horrible if they share my data in the in the wrong way. That's all there is to it. Some things that have happened says they've changed the law to explicitly authorize the practices Snowden denounced. Yeah, of course. And and the worst thing is when they are going to explicitly reinforce and and you know sort of put a rubber stamp a, a stamp of approval on those practices that Snowden has exposed. Snowden says, here, you know, here's these things that the government is doing, and it is probably a violation of the current law that's on the books. And the legislators say, oh, let's fix that. Let's make it so it's legal now. None of this should be at the discretion of legislators, of politicians at all. The Supreme Court, if it has any balls in any sense at all, is going to take this right out of the legislators' hands and put it back under constitutional protection. I am not holding my breath that they're going to do this. As I said, the most promising thing that I heard is the line of questioning from Gorsuch. The other justice who I think could be sympathetic to the property-based conception of privacy and a a contract-based conception of privacy is Justice Thomas. Justice Thomas, I think, almost never speaks or questions in the oral argument. So we don't know what's going on in his head. But the next logical progression of what Scalia was talking about in some of the privacy cases that he wrote opinions for before his death, in particular, United States versus Jones, the next logical progression is to realize that we are engaged in contractual relations when we share privacy and that that contractual relationship should be deemed to protect any data shared within the context of that contract unless there's a warrant presented based on probable cause or particularized suspicion. That's what needs to happen. But, you know, one another major problem today, and this is where leftists, leftists, you guys are just so screwed up on privacy issues, right? Because privacy, if you think about it, you know, if you, let, let's go ahead and, and talk about what privacy is a little bit. Privacy is a state, right? Privacy is, um, it's not itself a fundamental. In society, when we decide to live in society with other people, we can create states of privacy for ourselves, but we can create those states only by using our property and our contract rights. That's the way that we create privacy today. Now, we can still, to a large extent, use our property rights to create states of privacy for, for, you know, for ourselves, like within our homes and stuff. There's decent protection under the Fourth Amendment warrant requirement for, you know, private property, for actual tangible property. But there's just pretty much no protection for any state of privacy that you try to create yourself, create for yourself using your right of contract. And this is what I mean when I have that catchphrase, legalized privacy. You know, someone was saying, 
uh, God, what was it that they were saying on my um, on my Facebook? Let me go over to. I have a page for my show on Facebook, and I went ahead and shared my show yesterday with people talking about you know the need to legalize privacy. And a lot of people don't understand, you know, what in the world does she mean by legalized privacy? You know, it's like privacy is some uh, contraband or something, and, and it's and it's really not. So let me find what this user commented over here. Yeah, Facebook and all these things it puts in my face, right? Okay, so Ray over on my page, he says, legalized privacy, it's kind of like we'll force them to be free. That's what he said. Like, that's what I want to do. I want to force people to be free. So I want to force you guys all to live these very private lives. No, not at all. And I say, actually, it's more like legalizing pot. And really, I promise, it's like legalizing pot. That's all that this is really about. It's about giving you the individual options with respect to your privacy, with respect to your sharing of data. Our government should recognize that as we go about our daily lives today and we avail ourselves of all the wonderful things that technology has to offer, that we must share information about ourselves in order to enjoy those values. And therefore, we need to think a little bit more critically, a little more deeply about protecting people's ability to share information in a certain context and not deeming them to have given up all rights to that information in any context. You know, so for example, we talk about the roads. You know, it, we're now technologically able to have private roads and have the billing for the driving on the roads and stuff all be automated because of this great technology. Um, if we share information, you know, that we've driven down a particular road a certain day or whatever. We're sharing that in the context of wanting to be able to drive down the road and pay for it easily and not have to stop at a toll booth and cash and all those, you know, unwieldy things that you used to have to do on the toll roads. You don't have to do that anymore. You just drive and they scan your license plate and they bill you and it's automatically on your credit card and, you know, it's gone. That is wonderful. It's just such a wonderful time-saving device to be able to drive on relatively traffic-free roads and not have to stop at toll booths and pay or have any hassle at all. It's, it's great. And we should be able to do that without thinking, oh, well, the government is going to now obtain a comprehensive record of my location and where I've driven on a day simply because I, I choose to avail myself of certain technological conveniences. That, that should not be the case. Uh, you know, who our data is ours, by the way, right? Um, our data is ours and we should be able to determine the situations in which we share it. And it should be a logical application of our right to contract, our ability to contract. I'm looking over at the chat at YouTube, and there's a little bit of different topics here. Uh, Robert says, how does Snowden survive in Russia? I have no idea, and I, I worry about his ability to survive there all the time. The biggest thing I worry about now is Pompeo is going to make some deal with the Russians, and then they're going to put a hit on Snowden or something, because there's a number of people in our government and other people who might be in our government, former Ambassador John Bolton might join our government, as last I heard, they want Snowden dead. They want this hero dead. 
So, um, uh, yeah, so contract really is, is the way to do this. And, and leftists, I think, get it wrong because leftists don't like the right to contract. And leftists have not liked the right to contract ever since the Lochner case. You know, there was a, Loch, a famous case in the Supreme Court called Lochner in 1905. And that case, it was really the last one that did it, it upheld the right and the freedom of contract against government regulation. But that was 1905. That was really the last stand for contract. And then after that, the courts ended up reversing and saying, no, you know, government has various interests that supersede the right of contract. And one of those interests now apparently is that, you know, the, the reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, Another piece of it to understand is that reasonable expectation of privacy test. Uh, ever since the 1970s, the court has understood that, or actually they've just kind of ruled by fiat, that if the Fourth Amendment is going to protect your person's houses, pa- places, effects, right? Person's houses, uh, papers, and yeah, per- person's, sorry, person's houses, papers, and effects, right? Yes. Persons, houses, papers, and effects. Sorry, guys, uh, losing it here a little. So if, if the court is going to protect that, then you have to have in these things what's called a reasonable expectation of privacy within a particular context. And this third-party doctrine, as I said, strips this away. Um, in the 70s, there were a couple cases at the beginning that, where they started to apply this in what we call an ordinary business records context. It had been up to 1970 or so before that, the only context in which they applied this third-party doctrine was in a criminal context. So it was only if, you know, within the context of a criminal conspiracy that I shared information that the government could obtain it without a warrant. But in the 1970s, you have two cases. You've got Smith and you have White and, um, excuse me, Smith and Miller, Smith and Miller, White was before that. So you have Smith and Miller and they involved bank records and phone records and the government you know the supreme court held first with respect to banking and then with respect to phone records they did it in the banking context first and they said if you share information with the bank then you no longer have a reasonable expectation of privacy in it it was more plausible with respect to the bank that you would do this why because at the time already there were a lot of regulations on the banks and the bank's collection of data about you. Uh, Then the court went ahead and extended that reasoning to uh, phone records in the Smith case. And um, there they were saying that if you share with the phone company, the numbers that you dial, that that information could be turned over to the government without a warrant. So they're saying it is not a search at all. And all that the government has to do is maybe a subpoena. Um, You know, there's a FISA court order. There's various ways that the government can obtain it according to statute. But none of those is tantamount to a warrant requirement based on probable cause and particularized suspicion. Uh, About the value of privacy, you know, I gave a whole course on this, and I don't want to belabor it too much, but privacy is something that, makes you a potentially more productive person because you can, you know, sort of shelter out all sorts of distractions. So there's a productivity connection to privacy. And in 
fact, what I've given lectures about this in, in the chapter of a book that I'm writing on this, I talked about studies that are detailed in a book called Quiet by Susan Cain. And they have shown that if you uh, are doing work, for example, in a private office versus an open plan space, that you're much more efficient. They've done studies on computer programmers to show that computer programmers who are you know, sheltered in their own offices, free of distractions, are, are much more productive. You know, I experienced myself, right? The, the whole video, being here on video is a bit distracting. And when I was before just doing audio and it was just me and I didn't think about how I was looking or if people were looking at me, I could focus a little bit more on contact. It, it, it's harder to think and be more productive when you have less privacy. That's all there is to it. Uh, so it's productivity. Talk about the value of human relationships, right? If you aren't selective in sharing of personal information about yourself, then what is it that you have to offer when you want to have a special relationship with a particular individual? You know, if you're just a person who shares indiscriminately everything about yourself all the time, then there's nothing unique and special that you're sharing with those people who are the highest values to you. Um, you know, and then of course there's, if you have privacy, you know, with, when you're having parties with your friends or, you know, if you have a significant other, you know, that you're spending time with, all of those interactions are much better if you don't have the whole world watching or anything else. So um, there's, you know, different things to think about. There's values, the values that you enjoy, there's productivity, um, you know, of course, you want to have privacy vis-a-vis -vis the government. I've talked about that. Privacy is a value. I would suggest not giving up on it. And I would suggest trying to fight for a legal climate that, um, you know, that, that basically is going to help protect your ability to create states of privacy for yourselves and have those respected. Uh, it's a little bit after the top of the hour. Let me get to uh, a couple things. One is I want to talk about this kind of complaint that you often hear. And it, I think it's a legitimate complaint, which is that Amy, you know, suppose Amy, you, you know, you get your wish and, and the courts and the legislators and everybody decides that they're going to understand and recognize that privacy is protected by contract. And, you know, the third party doctrine is going to be either eliminated or it's going to be scaled back to just the criminal context, like you argue. By the way, I've got my article linked to in the in the program notes. The article is um, Carpenter v. U.S., the Supreme Court's opportunity to legalize privacy. It's over at the objective standard. It's in my program notes at the blog at don'tletitgo.com. It tells you exactly what I think should be done in that case. So suppose you say, OK, Amy, you got your wish. The you know, contract law is now protecting privacy, but look, you know, when I join Facebook or when I am driving down the toll roads and stuff, there's no contract. I haven't signed a contract. I mean, and maybe you have, you've clicked on it and you say, I agree. How many times a day do you click, I agree, and you never really read the contract? Are, are you really giving consent? And, and if you're not really giving consent, if nobody's really reading these things anyway, how can you protect yourself? Well, the answer to that is in the old law of contract. If we look at the common law of contract, there is an answer to this. And as I said, leftists don't want to avail themselves of the common law of contract. They don't want contracts to be sacrosanct. They don't want property be, to be sacrosanct. But nonetheless, 
in a society, the proper way that you create states of privacy is through your ability to create, you know, property interests that are protected and in enforceable contracts. So what would you do? In, in the common law, there are cases that talk about, for example, uh, you go to a nightclub, and this is one of the ones I remember. You go to a nightclub, and you turn over at the coat check, maybe a coat, maybe a package or something for them to hold while you're hanging out at the nightclub or dinner club or whatever it is. And they give you the little ticket. And this happens also, you know, you, you um, valet park your car when you go to a restaurant or something, and they give you a little ticket this contract limits our liability, read it, and it says all this stuff. Who reads that stuff? No, nobody reads this, right? Just like you're clicking all day and you say, I agree, I agree, without reading this stuff. Who reads this stuff? So what the law has developed is this idea that you are liable or you're held to have made a contract only insofar as the reasonable person, the average reasonable person in your situation will have made that contract. In fact, I used the word person just now, but as I learned the doctrine way back when, it was the reasonable man standard, right? There's this wonderfully useful reasonable man standard that has permeated the common law, and I think it can be used here as well. Now, um, in these common law cases that I'm talking about, they would say that you would be, liable and, and of course also the coat check people would be liable only for whatever they would be deemed to have reasonably agreed to in that sort of situation. So, you know, if they want to say on the ticket, we're not liable at all for the safety of, of your belongings, the fact that you give it over to us and we give you a ticket and you're paying us money or whatever, it means nothing. You have no safety at all. That's not going to be upheld, right? So it's going to be whatever the reasonable terms would be of this sort of contract that people engage in, if it's something that is unexpected, then that's not going to be upheld. I think something like this can be applied in the context of Facebook, for example. As I was talking about earlier, if I go on Facebook, I am sharing things with a group of people called my friends, and my understanding is I'm sharing it to them for a limited purpose. It's to entertain them. I happen to know that it's also because Facebook wants to attract my friends' eyes to the ads that they're putting and stuff. All of this is something that I, the average reasonable person, you'd say, okay, Amy, you can't be reasonable and be on Facebook. That's a, a different argument, right? But if we can say that there is such a concept as the average reasonable Facebook user, the average reasonable Facebook user does, I think, not believe that when you're sharing something with friends, you're therefore sharing it with everybody else for all sorts of purposes. You think that you're doing exactly what Facebook is showing you that you're doing, is that you're sharing something with only friends or with certain people in a you know, subset of friends or a group or whatever it is. That's what the average reasonable Facebook user would think that they're doing, and that's the only thing that should be deemed in the law for you to have done. Uh, so if, you know, who knows if my psychogenic profile is in Cambridge Analytica, it might be, it might not be, I don't know if I'm connected to any of those 270,000 users. I'd, I'd hope not. But, uh, you know, at the same time, as I said, the Mechanical Turks program on its face, it doesn't look like something horrible, like a, 
you know, some of these messenger viruses that people have come through and, and click on and stuff. Uh, you know, you always hope you're not going to get infected by that. I don't click on those things, but some people do. And, and some of my friends do sometimes. And that that's just how it is. Uh, but yeah, maybe somebody did. And maybe I'm in that Cambridge Analytica database. They didn't get me to vote for Trump. So it didn't work, right? I, I didn't vote for him. I voted for Gary Johnson. Uh, but did I give my permission for my data to be used in that way? No, I don't. I don't think I did. I don't think I should have been deemed to have, even if it was in all of those things that I clicked. I agree to. That's what I'm proposing. I'm saying that we use the average reasonable person, as they call it, standard now, and we enforce contracts and we don't impute onto people because they've shared something with Facebook that they should believe, for example, like the, the guy in the Zoom chat over here says, he says, you know, you should just say that when you share something on Facebook, the NSA gets it. Sorry, I'm not giving that up yet. I do not think it is reasonable that it should be encoded in law, that we should accept the idea that because we share something with Facebook, therefore the government has it all day long, every day. We're told that the government is not engaged in real-time monitoring of our Facebook feeds or our messages or anything else. And I'm ready to hold those people to their word. If there's some government people who want to release my private data, I'm going to make them look as bad as they truly are all day long, every day, 24 hours a day. Um, what do we got over here at the chats, the various chats? Let me do that before I revisit my program notes. Privacy is the greatest protection anyone has for their individual rights. In order for someone to attack your rights, they have to know about you. I mean, it, it is true in the sense that they, if they know about you, then they can really get you where you live, right? They, they know the things that are valuable to you, and they know the things that, for instance, could be, you know, you could be subject to bribe for certain things, but I, I mean, there's nothing that anybody could bribe me about. I just, um, any anything that is of value, I, I wouldn't care if you know various. I mean, I, I care if people know. I don't want it, right? There's there's certain relationships that you have in your life that are based on the fact that you engage in selective sharing. Selective sharing of yourself with other people is a tremendous value. And Facebook, if they are, you know giving your data away to other people for any purpose to which I haven't consented. Again, you know, the fact that they want to sell me stuff, they want my eyes on ads all day long. That does not bother me. What bothers me is for them to give my data to government without any sort of warrant. Cause I am a good and peaceful person that is ridiculous. Um, or to give, you know, it to just other people who have no legitimate reason to, to know it. Uh-huh. He says, if they don't know you exist, then they cannot attack you. Yeah, of course, if they don't know you exist. It is hard to have a government not know you exist and to then also avail yourself of any benefits out there that are, are wonderful. There's all this wonderful stuff at our fingertips. Um, I'm not willing to give that up. I don't, I don't think we should impute to the average Facebook user the premise that once you share something on Facebook in any way that it's deemed public. 
And in fact, you know, the thing that annoys me about our law enforcement today is the fact that they don't mine the publicly available data. You know, they're spending all this time collecting huge databases of our private data. And then when it comes to actually protecting us against real threats, they don't bother. They can't be bothered to, for example, scan Twitter, public tweets out there, uh, you know, for all the things that they need to do to, to protect us. What's your opinion on Scalia, says Nick. So I thought Scalia was going in the right direction, seeing Fourth Amendment, and he was, um, you know, sort of reinvigorating what was known as the property-based conception of privacy. The reasonable expectation of privacy test that I talked to you about and was a balancing test that was introduced in the 60s, and it balanced whatever expectation you had in privacy in a certain area against the social so-called interests of society, very, very pragmatic. You know, it's like demand. You demand your privacy on the one side, and then society demands to know certain things about you. So, for example, that they could be safe, right? You know, I've heard Greg Gutfeld argue on Fox that, you know, we have to find the needle in the haystack in order to keep everybody safe. And in order to find the needle in the haystack, we have to have the haystack. And so, therefore, the government has to have access to all all this information about you. I say BS. the government does not have the right to gain information about you. Nobody has the right to get information about you except for those things that you choose to share with them. We need to protect in law the ability to choose to share limited things in limited contexts. We need to reinvigorate property rights in order to do that. And unfortunately, the leftists, for all of their talk about privacy, that's the one thing they do not want to do. You know, somebody like, for instance, a Glenn Greenwald is not sympathetic to my argument about the third party doctrine because my third party doctrine would my my argument about the third party doctrine, my scaling back of the third party doctrine is premised on understanding property, excuse me, privacy, understanding privacy from a property and contract based perspective. And leftists do not believe in property rights. They do not believe in contract rights. Yet these are the things that all day long we are trying to use to create states of privacy for ourselves. We have some success with respect to property in creating privacy interests for ourselves. We have no success with respect to contract in creating privacy for ourselves, not legally protected privacy. We have de facto privacy, I think, to a large extent, maybe to a larger extent than Craig uh, believes, you know, listener to my show. He's very skeptical about that. I think de facto we have quite a bit of privacy. De jure in the law, we have very little privacy. And that's something that is in the back of all of our minds all the time. I mean, you know, I haven't done it for a while, but it's like, you know, I I flip off, right? The government, to the extent that they're watching me, you know, privately when I don't want them to. Now, right now I'm public, right? You know, anybody can watch this, including, in fact, I want the government to come get an education from me right now about the third party doctrine. But you know, I'm I'm not that skeptical. Du jour, I know. I know that they can get all of that data about me without a warrant. But they're the ones who are being immoral. I'm not going to feel guilty because they have a whole bunch of unjust laws on the book. It's ridiculous. Um, so that is that. Let me get over to my blog at DontLetItGo.com and see what else I can get to before we're out of time today. 
I've got, you know, some privacy related cases. Oh, so I've got the clip of Ben Shapiro and Ben Shapiro, his focus, at least in that clip, and I think his initial focus was in countering the leftists. And he says about the leftists, you know, that they're, the, the whole thing is they're using this data mining issue, the you know, Cambridge Analytica data mining issue in order to feed their certain narrative, which is that Trump wouldn't have won but for nefarious conduct by all these parties. And I don't know, as I said, if data Analytica had information about me, probably they did. They didn't convert me into a Trump voter. I'm not so concerned about people putting ads, as I said, in my face and stuff. I feel like I can think for myself and, and make decisions regardless of what ads and fake news and everything else that people put in my face. Uh, I don't think it had an effect. And and I, I agree that the leftists are using this to feed their narrative and it's just stupid. What I think is unfortunate is that that's taking place and that people aren't looking at the real issue. And I was heartened, as I said, by the fact that Ben Shapiro retweeted my tweet that I put out there. I put the tweet in the form that Ben Shapiro puts a number of his tweets because he'll recognize logical juxtapositions like this quite often. I said, I said, the leftists are using Cambridge Analytica story to push a particular narrative. That's one thing that's true. Second, there is something real and disturbing about the Cambridge Analytica story, something that goes beyond mere politics. And then I say both can be true. And that's the form of a tweet that Shapiro has often said, but I didn't know whether he agreed with the substance and he, end, he went ahead and, and retweeted. I don't know if he would agree with me. I doubt he would agree with me precisely about the solution. I tend to think that Shapiro falls in line with a number of conservatives, for example, who would condemn Snowden. I would love the opportunity to defend my view of privacy and, and Snowden with him at, at some point that could be added to topics for discussion. Cause I also would love to talk to him about the, uh, you know, that Ayn Rand's philosophy of personal relationships is garbage, that comment is, as well. Plus, there, I mean, there's just so much I could talk about with Shapiro. It would, it would, it would be a lot of fun. But, you know, in, in the political realm, yeah, I defer to him. Yeah, they're using this to push their anti-Trump narrative. I am anti-Trump. And nonetheless, I can agree that that's taking place. And, but I can also, as someone who's been looking at the privacy issue for so long, identify that there is a real issue about Cambridge Analytica. Uh, there's a couple of privacy-related stories that you should be worried about over at the blog. One of them, thanks to Brooke Unlow, sent it over. She, I guess, alerted me to it on, on Twitter. It says, in a case that raises questions about privacy, one U.S. police department sought Google data from all of the mobile devices in the vicinity of various crimes. So if you have a mobile device and you were in the vicinity of a certain crime that took place at a certain time, they're saying that the government can get your data in addition to anybody else's simply because you were geographically in the vicinity. This is not a warrant based on probable cause and particularized suspicion. You know, what's the vicinity? How many people are there? How many people does it cover? There's, they've really been pushing this. And the fact that the third-party doctrine doesn't cover the data that we give over to our cell phone company makes stuff like this possible. Let's see what else? Oh, let me get it. 
Oh, I guess it's the Apple Insider on Twitter is the is the link that I shared. So let me get over back to my program notes. I got kicked off of them. So that's one story to think about is that police are routinely doing this. They're, they're trying to seek data about people simply because they're in a certain geographical area in which a crime took place. And the reason they can do that, again, is because of the third-party doctrine. Third-party doctrine makes it so that only statutes are controlling what information police or any other law enforcement agency is, is getting about you. You know, at least the police are usually dealing with real crimes. That's a, a step better than a lot of other things that the government is doing. Uh, then there's this disturbing story, thanks to Michael Martz, who has been a show supporter. So thank you, Michael, for the, the story and, and for your support. Geek Squad. Geek Squad's relationship with FBI is cozier than we thought. Turns out if you go get your computer repaired by Geek Squad, that sometimes the FBI will use a Geek Squad employee to flag illegal material. So you turn your information over to Geek Squad for a limited purpose. You just want your computer repaired. And then suddenly, without a warrant, this information is given over to law enforcement. Something else, again, made possible because of the third-party doctrine, the fact that the FBI can establish this relationship with Geek Squad in the first place is made possible because of the third-party doctrine. And again, what's the solution to this third-party doctrine? I believe that you're going to have to, in order to make a real solution in the law about this, go back and radically scale back the third-party doctrine or eliminate it entirely. And I've given a solution that can be you know, implemented consistent with common law and consistent with the ability of government to do its job. I'm not an anarchist. I want the, you know, the government to be able to engage in proper law enforcement activities. But I think we need the warrant requirement to, you know, to apply to all of our data. In terms of just sort of a culture of privacy and how far away that we've gotten away from it and how much the government thinks it's entitled to all of your data, I've got this story from New York Times. The headline is, The Struggle to Build a Massive Biobank of Patient Data. And there's, you know, the angle of privacy is very disturbing about this because it does. The government wants to make this biobank of patient data. It wants to sequence, uh, you know, the genome of a whole bunch of people. They want to find one million people, it says, in the United States from all walks of life and all racial and ethnic groups and you want, you know, they want those people to have their genomes sequenced and to provide their medical records and regular blood samples. This is not a proper function of government. Government should not be in the business of collecting medical data about individuals. It shouldn't, of course, why does it have a plausible reason to do this? It's because the government is now in the business of providing health care. We're moving closer and closer to a single-payer system. You know, those, I actually did have somebody on YouTube who asked, can you talk about the problem with socialized medicine or single-payer? Social, I, I, I call it uh, mutual enslavement medicine is, is what I've called it in the past because that's what we're going to be. We're going to be mutually enslaved when, once we have a fully socialized medical system. This is one of the major downsides is that the government now believes that it is right for it to have 
all of your medical data. And in fact, a huge part of Obamacare, one of the most offensive parts of Obamacare was the requirement that doctors and everybody else turn your medical information over to the government, Uh, you know, digitize, make it more efficient. Your treatment is going to be more efficient and cost effective, blah, 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 blah. Private medical data in the hands of the government so that they could potentially use it against you. And as I've said, we've seen government use particular information about beliefs and everything else against people. Obama's done it. I'm sure that Trump is doing it. We just don't know about it yet because everybody's distracted by other stuff that's less important. Um, so privacy-wise, this is disturbing. The funny thing about this story, you can go ahead and read it. It's straight out of Atlas Shrugged. Huge, unwieldy, expensive government program. And they talk about the fact that it's been in place for years now, and they've done almost nothing. So it says in the three years since the All of Us that's it, all of us, that's what it's called. How collectivist is that? The All of Us program, in the three years since it was announced, not a single person's DNA has been sequenced. Instead, project leaders have signed up more than 17,000 volunteers as, quote, beta testers in a pilot phase of the program. They supplied blood and urine samples, had measurements taken, and filled out surveys. There's a president and chief scientific officer of a biotech company called Regeneron. I can't pronounce his name, unfortunately. His first name is George. He said the NIH did not have much to show for three years of planning. And they go on and on about this. And he says at this rate, when, they, uh, when will they complete their one million person target, he wondered, and at what taxpayer cost? So, yeah, huge, unwieldy, inefficient government program. What else is new? But to me, again, the most disturbing thing about it is the scope of this and that the government is even engaged in the collection of this type of data about individual citizens. There should be no data in the hands of government about us unless they have a warrant based on probable cause and particularized suspicion. I can't emphasize that strongly enough. And that's including data that we share with third parties, including doctors. You know, HIPAA is a joke, by the way. You think HIPAA protects your privacy? It does not. HIPAA basically encodes, puts sanction to all of the government data collecting practices about your medical information. It, you know, doctors give me those HIPAA things and I just laugh. It's like, yeah, okay, I know government has all my data. That's all it's about. It's not about protecting your privacy. It's about the government getting its hands on your data. It's about the move, you know, the move towards 1984. If you haven't read 1984, if you haven't read it in a long time, you don't have a copy anymore, Grab a copy. I've got the link in the program notes at the blog at don'tletitgo.com. I have one more story, and it's actually not privacy-related, but I want to go ahead and just bring it up because I want to show you sort of the none-of-the-above aspect about me. I've had this discussion with Jerome Brook how our views that we put out there are none-of-the-above. They're not liberal. They're not conservative. They're not even really libertarian, although in this case, I think I would fall in line with a lot of people who would call themselves libertarian. The headline, it's an opinion piece over at New York Times, the abortion case that's really about the First Amendment. By the way, I want to give kudos to New York Times for publishing this and for publishing that other story about that horrible government program about genome, the All of Us program, genome sequencing. They're publishing some good actual news stories. There's a little bit of leftist bias to it, you know, that they don't flag the real issues sometimes, but I'm glad that they're doing it. This case that they're talking about, it's National Institute of Family and Life Advocates versus Becerra. 
It involves the government, state government, trying to force a conservative religious institution to, you know, educate the people who visit them about the availability of free abortions, certain government programs that will give him, them free or low-cost abortions and stuff. And as you can imagine from the title, the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates does not believe in the propriety of a woman obtaining an abortion. Now, I personally believe that a woman should have a right to obtain an abortion. I don't believe the government should provide it. I don't believe I should have to pay for somebody else's abortion. I believe there should be a right to an abortion. I believe it should be a right that is exercised as rarely as humanly possible, that it would not be rational to put yourself in a situation where you're going to just, you know, have to have an abortion routinely or anything. Uh, Abortion is nothing anybody should relish or look forward to. I I would never call myself pro-abortion. I would call myself pro-choice. So that being said, nonetheless, I am in support of the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates in this case. I strongly uphold their right to freedom of expression, as is highlighted in this opinion piece, uh, even though I myself am am pro-choice. We should all be able to express our opinion. Uh, That being said, go over to the blog. I'm running out of time here. Go to DontLetItGo.com. You'll see I've got a couple of musical selections. Muse Resistance is a 1984 themed uh, song. If you know the novel 1984 and you read the lyrics of that song, you'll see the the resemblance. And then I've got St. Vincent's uh, Digital Witness. I had one friend on Twitter. He quipped. He said, you know, could I buy my psychogenic profile from Cambridge Analytica? Could I buy it back? And St. Vincent has this great lyric, uh, are, are they going to sell me back to me or something? You know, you've shared all this data. Will Facebook sell you back to yourself? So enjoy those, everybody. And I'm going to see you guys next time. I have to figure out how to shut down all these various feeds. I guess first I'm going to say goodbye to Blog Talk People and my episode over there. And let me make sure I didn't miss anything over here in the chat. No? Okay, everybody, thank you to those of you who have joined me at Zoom, all of my patrons over at Patreon and show supporters at my blog. If you'd like to become a patron next time and get a special invite to the Zoom chat, I'd love to have you. So find me at patreon.com forward slash Amy. And remember, if you're watching right now on YouTube, if you're getting any value from this show, please subscribe. And also, everybody, if you get value from this show, I'd love if you could share it. That would be wonderful. So thanks, everybody. Take care. I'm going to end my Zoom meeting, and that will make me say goodbye.